I think it's fair to say that we're bad at podcasting, and I don't mean like <laughs> Otis. that we Otis. that we uh, <laughs> that we are bad. We produce bad content, but like literally, we're bad at making a podcast. I will, I will, I will grant that we could be better, but <laughs> but I will, I will also say that like, hey, the last year has been kind of busy, right? Yeah. It's been something. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I'm no longer a cat. I mean, I'm always going to be a Californian, but I no longer am a Californian in California and I'm a Californian in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, which is fine. Uh, New Hampshire is nice. Like it's, it's icy. Um, it, it literally snowed an eighth of an inch, which is just now which is just enough that I have to like go out with a broom and sweep off my driveway, my long yeah. driveway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I moved, I, I said goodbye to Oakland and Castro Valley and places that I love for a much, much cheaper house than <laughs> I, I was making payments on in, in California. That, well, that happened last year and yeah. still, still a devoted, still working on Medicare Advantage, but doing yeah, it. So, so I mean, you're also a little closer to work, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm an hour away from from where the devoted HQ, which is still far. Yeah, but uh, it's a lot farther than a, a a plane plane flight. And yeah, we're the part of New Hampshire we're in um, is close enough to Boston that like you can you can make it in there a couple of days a week. Nice. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I I, I would imagine. I I would imagine that drive would be much more pleasant in the summer. Um, like winter, winter driving when I lived in Toronto was not my favorite. I, oddly enough, I grew up in one of the parts of California where you have to practice winter driving a lot. So mm -hmm. I, my, my advice is try not to do it yep. um, for the most part or do it really, really slow. The, the bigger adjustment I found is not like the weather. It is just the sheer amount of crap I own now in terms of <laughs> like, a New Hampshire house comes with an oil heater, which I, I'm going to figure out how to get rid of at some point because somebody, <laughs> somebody has to come by my house and refill it like it's a car. Um, and then there's a water filter because we have a well now. And then there's a water softener because the natural state of the water in our well is actually this like bright orange color. Um, and that has to be filtered out and then, and then all the iron has to be removed. And we have a septic tank, which means that you can't like, you know, you can't have a garbage disposal. And yeah. also it's at some point over I the would, next 20 years that will blow up and cause a big splotch in the yard. Um, I, I was, I was actually going to ask about that. Like, are you, are you at a place where they have sewer lines or do you have a septic tank? No, we have a septic tank and I grew up in rural California where I had a septic tank too. And yeah. I, I, so I, I like know the, what not to flush down the toilet basically, but, <laughs> Fair enough. but I still like, I'm not, you know, I, I'm still a Californian trying to get used to all of the different levels of home maintenance that I've now uh, adopted. Kind of uh, taken upon yourself as it, yes. as it were. Yeah. Yes. New, New well, Hampshireites are, are gritty people that, that yeah. have to like do a lot of stuff to keep yeah. their house from, uh, from not functioning. Yeah, but you got space now. Yeah, yeah, we definitely got a lot. Like the house, the house got bigger, and the the price got cheaper. So nice. that was that was that was that was a decent trade in that. We do we do miss I do miss uh, the Bay Area though. Like there's still 
there's still a lot there's a lot to there's a lot to love about uh, about the east bay in particular yeah i mean you know obviously we are still here we still love it here um okay hang on one second okay gila uh i need you to either be quiet okay. yeah um yeah obviously we are we are still here um it's been we'll call it an active year uh so we we haven't moved uh across the country like uh uh, uh like like you have but like Gosh, I can't even remember. Like, when was the last time we spoke? It must have been, or when? When? When was the last podcast episode we did? The last pot we we did one just as po- like just as COVID was coming into lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. we're like, and then and and then everything went nuts. I would yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like it was already nuts, but I think both of our our lives. Like, I ended up having to own just a ton of the COVID work at devoted and then i decided to move yeah uh, sell my house buy another house yeah and and then you you were you you know your new company was in motion yeah um yeah i I remember you couldn't hire anybody or do anything at the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that is that 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 is accurate but but yeah yeah okay so the last time we spoke like i had recently left clover we had had the third kid. I don't think I would recommend a baby in a lockdown to most people, but like, hey, like you don't always get to choose those things. Um, yeah, and, and 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 I had just started. I just started my company, which I couldn't even talk about because we weren't like actually there yet. Um, but uh, but. Uh, but yeah, now we're now we're launched. We're public. We're live. So, what you should you should uh, talk about talk about your your new company, the your yeah. your other your other baby. Yeah, my other baby. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, we are we're uh, we're called LifeRaft. Um, we are building uh, insurance products uh, in the supplementary health space. Uh, so, so the way that I sort of think about it is, uh, is so your, your health plan, uh, which I know very well coming out of the Medicare Advantage space, um, is not really an insurance product. Like you don't buy it to protect yourself. You buy it to get access to doctors. Um, and, so, and so in that sense, it is a, it is a network access product. You choose it based on which doctors you can see, uh, and its purpose is to make sure that you that you have healthcare available to you. Um, and that kind of leaves space in the market for a different kind of product, one that is actually there to protect your risk. Um, and so I kind of think of it as like we're building health insurance that looks like life insurance. So where the goal of it, instead of instead of giving you access to doctors and paying your doctors, is to protect you, um, uh, and uh, and essentially like for these more serious health events like a hospitalization or a cancer diagnosis or something like that, to have coverage that basically puts money in your pocket 
when something like that happens to help you deal with whatever the consequences of that of of of, of that event might be. Um, so yeah, we got uh, got the company started early last year. Uh, you know, got it financed so that we were actually you know raised some money so that we were actually able to do something. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and went live with our first product uh, just before Thanksgiving. So yeah, if you want to, if you want to check us out, www.liferaft.co, uh, we can put that in the show notes. I'll put that in the show notes. I'll, I'll put the, I'm putting, putting together the website too, so we can, yeah. we can put um, the summaries in the, in that as well. Yeah. And, you know, just, just as a plug, we are hiring. Um, I need people. So, you know, please ping me, reach out. What, what kind of people are you, are you, what roles are you, are you hiring for? Just, I mean, just to... we've got all sorts of roles, uh, but uh, uh, software engineers, a big one. Um, and then, you know, kind of like product ops, generalist types. Um, like there's just, we're in a situation where there are more things to do than are getting done. <laughs> Um, and so if you're, you know, if you're excited and passionate about, about, you know, about helping people, uh, manage health risk, uh, and you are interested in, in, in an early stage company and all that entails both good and bad, uh, I would like to talk to you. <laughs> I think anytime we're talking, you can assume that we work for someone, we'll work for some company or, or running a company that needs software engineers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like one of those things you start a company, the first question is just like, all right, how am I going to get engineers? <laughs> for, for people who haven't done it before, like what's the, like, what does early stage feel like? Like you've, you, you went from early to mid at Clover. Yeah. And now you're back in early, which yeah. I imagine is like, uh, you jog is the memory. Yeah, on, I mean, on what that is like. Yeah, and 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 I mean that was very much a deliberate choice because, like, you know, early early stage is is sort of my happy place, but like the 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 big difference you kind of see in like in like early versus versus mid to late uh, is in how much structure there is. So when a company hits sort of its midlife, they've already figured out what the product does and how, and how it's going to be commercialized. So like how the business works. And when that happens, you, you get roles that have scope, meaning that like, now I can say like, all right, you are a business development rep. Like here is what I need you to do. Cause you're part of this part of the machine and, and like, here is the recipe for how you get from A to B. Like you are a product engineer. Uh, so this is the part of the code that you work on. Here is how you get your, you know, here's how you get your, your uh, requirements and your, uh, um, and like, kind of like your, your project marking order, uh, sorry, your project marching orders. And here is what I expect your output to be. Here's the cadence in which you have to work. Here's what your skill set needs to be. And like, here's the career ladder for you. You know, you are an analyst. Like, here's what your job looks like. So, so in, in that mid, in that mid stage area where, where you have figured out how the business works, you can start to scope people's worlds. Uh, 
in the early stage, you have literally none of that. What you have is like this idea of something that you want the business to do. So like, usually, if it is a reasonably well run early stage company, there's going to be a goal that the company orients around. So it's clear where you want to head to. Um, but nobody knows exactly how you're going to get there. And so even if you have a role that says, I am a software engineer, or I am a product manager, or I am an analyst, or I am a sales development rep, uh, there is still a lot of ambiguity in terms of like what your job actually looks like and, and what you should be doing to kind of move the company forward toward, towards that, 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 uh, you know, towards that, that big goal. And if the goal isn't present, you're not even an early stage company. You're just an idea. You shouldn't be hiring anybody. <laughs> right. So like, but once you have the goal, you can start hiring people, but they have to be the kind of people who love ambiguity. Because if, if you don't love ambiguity, you're going to drown in the deep end of the pool. You're, and, and like you basically, you won't be able to be effective and you're going to get frustrated that like, that like you can't figure out what it is you're supposed to be doing because it hasn't been written down for you. Um, and, you know, so in, in, in my experience, like most people know, like, are they a late, are they an early stage person or are they a later stage person? And that's usually anchored to like what level of ambiguity they, 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 they want in their lives. You know, to me now I'm the kind of person who it's like the moment scope comes into my role, I get bored. And so, no, no, no. I'm like, I want the chaos. I want the ambiguity. That's the thing I'm looking for. And so when a company hits mid stage, if, if, you know, as an employee, that's usually when I look to go do something else. That's an, uh, it's an interesting way to put it. I always think of like the very, like I have like a very simplified view of it, which is just like at big companies, there's a lot of people. And so there's room to specialize and specialists need a lot more roles to stay out of each other's way. Yeah. Um, and at small companies, there's, you have to, everybody has to be a generalist because there's not enough people to specialize. Yeah. The, the ambiguity is, is a good one too, because obviously a generalist has to deal with ambiguity because they're going to be, there's yeah. going to be, there's no boundary on your, there's no effective boundary on your job. Yeah. And so that's, that's going to happen a lot. I think you can find ambiguity at a big company if you find the right spot, right? Like you can carve out territories where you're like, look, we don't know what goes on here, uh, but let's try some stuff. There's usually, there's usually areas where you can find it if you work for the right company. Yeah. I mean, I mean, but, I mean, you can, you can find it. I think part of the difference is also in terms of like how you think about that ambiguity. Like mm -hmm. the goal of a big company is like when you find ambiguity, hammer it out as quickly as you can. Uh, in, in an early stage company, you actually want to lean into that, right? Because if you hammer it out too early, you might miss upside, right? Like if you, if you hammer out the ambiguity and the chaos before you have figured out, oh, this is the thing we're actually doing. Like here is what here is where our value proposition really is. Here's what our go-to-market motion has has to look like. If you hammer that stuff out too early, you cap the upside of the company. You may not end up getting where you actually need to go. Yeah. And to like give a concrete example is like if you focus on a particular market and hire a bunch of people that specialize in whatever that 
that well, sort of a concrete example um, that specialize in that part of the market, then you're locked in, right? Like it's it's hard for you to deviate from that. that yeah, course. yeah. So, and so, you know, the way to sort of, the way that I would kind of think about it is so, so let's say you're building a software as a service product, right? Uh, let's say, for example, it is, uh, um, uh, it's, it's some kind of sales tool, right? Now, if you are a scaled company, right, you have built a sales tool that helps salespeople close their leads. Let's call it fail source. Let's call sure. <laughs> Let's call it fail source, right? So if you are building fail source and, and you are a scaled company already, and you basically figure out that like, oh, wait a minute, like we have this product, uh, every Fortune 500 on the planet has bought it. Uh, 95% of companies with over 1,500 employees have bought it. Um, but like, we occasionally get these calls from companies that are sub 50 employees who have just hired someone who was at a Fortune 500 and they're looking to, you know, and they think they might want our product, but we've never serviced them before. We don't even know if we can. We don't know if it's the right products. Like, like there's now some ambiguity in that you're moving into a market you don't quite understand as well, right? But then what FailSource is going to optimize for is to figure out, all right, how do we understand this market as quickly as possible? How do we adapt the product that we have? Uh, how do we uh, um, how do we make sure that this set of customers get serviced, but we can't afford to service them at the level that we do our Fortune 500 customers because they're not going to spend as much? So, like, what do we have to do just to make sure that that this thing works for them? The thing that FailSource will will not do is they will not go straight back to the drawing board and say, okay, we we have revealed demand that small businesses want access to this, do we have the right product, right? Do we have the right go-to-market to access those folks? Uh, and they're going to try to bring in the thing they already have because that's what their business does. Um, yeah, so, so now imagine that you are a startup building a fail source type of software, Right, so you don't have any customers yet. Uh, your product probably isn't complete yet. You have some hypotheses about about what it should be and what it should do, um, and you're pretty. And you have targeted enterprise as like your, you know, as like your target market. So, uh, and maybe you even like hire a whole bunch of salespeople, right? And now they're going to like start calling Fortune 500s. And then at the same time, you start to get, you know, you, you've been doing some product marketing experiments and you start to get some inbound from small businesses, right? So when your business is not working yet, you, uh, if you take too structured a view, you're going to say, no, we're an enterprise company. Like we're selling to enterprises we're we keep going in this direction, right? But in that case, like the market is now starting to tell you something else, like maybe you're seeing uptake on the enterprise side and that's great. But in reality, that's probably unlikely to even catch one market segment. Like you need a lot of things to break in your direction. And so, but the moment you have that market segment basically telling you like, hey, we might want your product. Like 
you you need to be moving you need to at least be exploring that direction to figure out if it's viable and you're early enough that you may end up having to like rebuild part of your product to handle that group of people and that may even involve you like carving you know basically like ignoring the other path for now so the issue is is that if you haven't leaned into the ambiguity and you haven't leaned into the chaos uh, you can get stuck in this path of, of just like, well, we're building an enterprise company. We got to go sell to enterprises versus like the market is right there telling you like, no, the sub 50 small business segment is the one that wants this. Um, and, and, and so if you bring in structure too soon, you can actually lose where the business needs to go. Yeah. And I feel like I've seen, I've seen both where you have startups that just uh just never commit they never find yeah. the right they never like go after like decide to listen to the signal and go after the thing or ones that are just like doggedly sticking to the original goals um, yeah and you're like yeah. well why not try this other thing and they're like that would completely change our identity I'm like, oh, yeah i mean the, yeah like the i mean and and that's one of the hardest pieces is like finding that balance because basically like at some point in time, you have to say who you are and you need to walk down a path somewhere. Like you can't be both the company that is selling self-service to the small businesses and that is running enterprise sales, uh, you know, to, to the fortune 500s, at least at the outset. And, and the reason for that is because like the, the one selling to the small businesses is a product focused company because you just like the sales are not large enough to support a sales staff the one selling to the uh, uh, the ones doing doing the fortune 500 sales are a sales driven company because those organizations need service uh, and the and, and the contract sizes tend to be a, of a size that you can support that um, and so you build a fundamentally different company if you go one way versus the other so you have to choose but you want to choose in a direction where you have some level of directional evidence and really like where, where you have some market pull. And so part of the early stages is really to like give some time for that pull to develop so that you know which, which direction you have to commit aggressively to. Um, and and that mean and and that but that means you have to be flexible on structure and on organizational design until you figure that out. Uh, and so, like, no one can have a defined role because, like, you could promise somebody, like, yes, you're going to be an enterprise sales rep, and then it turns out you're in this SMB world, and you need them to work customer success. Like, that's a those are two different jobs. Another thing that that makes me think about is like either under or over imagining what it would take to do to add this to your portfolio as a startup, yeah. right? A lot yeah. of like it's it's legitimately tough, right? Like you're you're existing and doing this one line of business. It comes up that maybe you want to do this other thing, and then you have to identify um, does is it easy? Like, are we flexible enough? Can we can we just can we just be both a, a floor wax and a dessert topping? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or is it like just completely antithetical to what we are as a company? And sometimes it's like, it can be that in very subtle ways, right? It could be like the same type of platform, two different types of content, the type of people you need to sell into this type of content, not the people you want 
to sell into this other type of content. They won't get along with each other. They won't like each other. It'll yeah. be terrible to work here, right? Like, yeah. And I mean, you know, people tend to try to make blanket rules around this of like, well, a startup should only do one thing or, or, or like whatever. Like it, it, that's one of the other things about, about early stage. Like you learn very quickly that like, yeah, there are these rules of thumb. They're there for a reason, but every now and again, you kind of have to break them. Um, and like, and like basically just say like, no, this doesn't actually matter for, for this thing. Yeah. No, I know, I know you, I know you're a person that has always like, you, you've never surrendered your judgment to the rules, right? Like the, the rules are there. You listen to the rules, you think about the rules, but you decide whether to implement the rule or to, to not implement the rule. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, I don't take that lightly, right? Like, like I want to understand where the rule is coming from, because if, if a, you know, if a rule is there, there's usually something that has happened to put it there. And so you want to understand that, but you also like, you want to reason by principle, not by analogy, right? So like, basically, you know, you don't want to basically be saying, well, this rule is there because of these things that happened. You want the like, this rule is there because of this principle that we are trying to protect against. Um, and those are, you know, there are some subtle differences, but like reasoning by analogy means that, that like the only way that you're right is if, or, or the only way that you are consistently right is if the future is always the same as the past. Um, and yeah. since that is not so likely to be true, like at some point you're going to end up, like most of the time you'll end up subtly wrong and sometimes you will end up horrendously wrong. And you don't want to end up in the horrendously wrong scenario. Yeah, there's there's a metaphor in the book Range, which I think I was, I probably read before our our last podcast. Um, and it's tough, like it's a it's a rough one. There um, there was someone that they that the author interviewed whose job it was to figure out how to keep firefighters alive. Hmm. And so they did a study on like what happens to firefighters that that die in forest fires. And yeah. a big a big thing that comes up over and over again is that they wouldn't ditch their equipment and just run. Yeah. Because that's part of their training. And it's really yeah. good training is like don't ever leave your equipment behind. Like it will say, you know, most of the time it will save you. In the end, you know, and the the right thing to do most of the time is to keep your equipment, except when you're only like oh, chance to survive is to run. Yeah. So yeah. uh grim uh awful but like the, it, it's a it's a metaphor that sticks with you right is like yeah throw away your throw away your tools sometimes like that's yeah. it's the right move yeah 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 and that's like that stuff comes up in early stages like way more often than in than in mid-stage companies where you know in like mid to late stage it's like again you figured out what the business does like the right thing is usually to stick with it like in the early stages, especially if if you're in an established space, like there will be a tendency to think like, oh, well, there's a playbook for doing this. We should just do that. And the problem is that like, I mean, sometimes it'll work for you. A lot of times it won't. And either way, it will not work for you as well as it's going to work for your incumbent competitors because they are optimized for that already. And so if you follow their path, you will not catch them. 
like like they have already won that game and so that means like there are certain points in time like like in order for a company like that to succeed and like i know that we saw this at clover and and like and i would assume you see it at devoted as well like you have to be able to find the places where the playbook is no longer matched to the world and then change the playbook to match what the world looks like today. Um, and if you can do that, then you are in a position where you can effectively compete against, against the bigger players who have already locked in the market. Uh, but you got to figure out like, well, where is the mismatch and go sit in there but that means you are not going to be executing on whatever it is the, the, the best practices in the industry are considered to be. Yeah. One of the, I mean, I think about it as, you know, when you're a, a startup entrant into a, an established market, your, your job is 85% just doing all of the same things that everybody else does and figuring out the 15% that you're going to do differently. Yep. Um, and it's not easy and sometimes I mean, 90% of the things that you from the outside look and go like, why would a start? Why, why would you do this when yeah. you could just do why um, it's because some startup is tr going, you know, they're trying to reason about this market that they're entering and saying like, well, it can't do why everybody yeah. else does. Why they're really good at why we yeah. can't like, we get, we have to make our strength x and x turns out to be something where some sarcastic person on the internet is going like well you've just invented this thing that everybody has um, yeah yeah i mean and 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 you see that happening again like oftentimes from people looking at it from the outside uh and and and, and like i i personally think the thing that they end up missing is that is that like your job as the startup in that space is to find the 15% to do differently that actually matters. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff that you run, some of the experiments that you run through to get there are going to look stupid. Yeah. You can't get there without throwing out a thing that everybody does because it, yeah. for a really good reason, like that, yeah. that is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I read some of the articles that were, that that were circulating around around Clover at the at the time that that they were going public, and you know that definitely stuck out to me, where like there were a set of people who were you know who like their perspective was you know was basically like like well you know I mean essentially this company is dumb look at all the stuff they can't do, <laughs> like like without actually understanding that like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like no one is going to claim that they are the best run health plan on the planet. Like, you know, and maybe there's a world where they get there and maybe there's a world where they don't, but they cannot look like Humana or they cannot look like United and be competitive and effective. Like they have to be doing something different. And some of those things are going to look dumb. Uh, and some of the the dumb things are not going to work, and will leave some of the dumb things are dumb. Some of the dumb things, uh, yeah. are secretly smart. <laughs> yeah, but some of them might be pretty smart, and and so like you know, and it, and and the fundamental issue is that if you're in a company in a, in a space like that, and you can't find the fifteen percent, like you're done. Yeah. Right. Like 
because so, you will not catch up to the folks that are that are already there. The last thing I want to add to that discussion is that most dumb things, in fact, are dumb, right? Yes. Most things that yeah. look dumb from the outside 100%. are actually dumb on the inside. It's just like you have to, you have to, you have to do dumb things, yeah. dumb looking like, things in order to to do the the dumb looking smart thing. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you know, that that brings me to another thing. Like, I think it, we slightly slid by it. I've not ever really put a lot of value on reporting around startups because of that factor, because there's a tendency for reporters to be like, look at this dumb thing that ever that they're doing or, and I don't know, like it breaks down into two different types of journalism that if the flicked tech, um, half of it is like, look at this dumb thing that this, this startup is doing, isn't it dumb? And the other one, the other half is like, points that like reports on a dumb thing that a startup is doing is like doesn't actually point out that it's dumb (laughs) right it's really like i'm not saying oh i don't think tech reporters are good at their jobs i am saying like i don't really value that what comes out of that a lot because it's hard for them to get the kind of access that could actually help them critically evaluate what is going on in a useful way I mean, I think like the pithy way to put this is just like hard things are hard, (laughs) you know, and, and, and like to put something in like a, you know, in like a thousand word article that like does it justice is like a, it's, it is, it is not easy. Uh, But second of all, like, I mean, you know, if you're a startup, you're trying to start something new, like, are you really going to reveal everything you know to, like, the entire world? Like, if you'll pardon my French, like, no. (laughs) Right? We don't have to bleep that so we can can keep our, our, we can keep the explicit um, tag off of this. Uh, (laughs) The reporter can only talk to people that work at the company. Yeah. And the well, or or people who no longer work at the company, which or the people which, who no longer work like, at the company. It's really up. the same thing. Really the same thing applies, right? Yeah. Like everyone who talk like if you talk to a reporter about stuff going on at a company, like you're taking a risk. Like it yeah. may not it may not feel like you're taking a risk, but you probably are. You're oh. taking a risk of like angering your colleagues, which yeah. is a significant source of the actual value of working at a startup is like the, you know, the, the, you know, the goodwill of the people that you work with. And so I feel like there's people don't take that risk without a good reason. And that, that good reason usually is something that will prevent you from getting a clear neutral or truthful or like, like something that's of use to the general public as opposed to the person who like giving the reporter feeding the reporter information. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, basically everyone's got their incentives, essentially. If you're talking to someone who's there, their incentive is to make the company look good. If you're talking to someone who isn't there, like or to make themselves look good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're talking to someone who isn't there, oftentimes their incentive is the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, which makes me feel sad for for tech reporters. Like I don't like there's not, there's a, a couple of them that I just don't read because I don't care. But like, I, I, every time I read a, a, a tech article where I'm like, hmm, that doesn't feel quite right. I don't go, 
because this person reporting it is yeah no it, it, right like it is is it, more it's, it's like, like yeah it's, it's sucks. Like you, have a, you have a hard job sorry yeah. uh, sorry yeah. i don't like what comes out of it yeah yeah i mean i i would say like i i do wish that there was like you know to me be, because of the incentives of the trade it seems like 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 tech reporters especially tend to swing very heavily mm-hmm. in like, this is the most amazing thing that anyone has ever built. Or like these people are, are absolutely terrible, the most evil people on the planet. And like, neither of those things are really true. <laughs> um, and, and like, it, it, it's just like, it, it is difficult to get to the, to like the guts of a story and like really understand where you know where where it's coming from and the complexities around around the decision making you know and, I, I'll, I mean i'll add like if you want to get enough depth on a startup where you can understand the in, embed the the context and convey what's going on like if you want to get into the weeds or or any tech company really deeply enough then that pr- usually presumes a level of buy-in by the reporter that would make them their reporting on the subject like subject to bias on its own yeah there are there are scenarios yeah it and and like when you're when you're in a competitive space it's like very very difficult to imagine a scenario as a company where like you would let somebody walk in and get that kind of access uh basically because again like you'd be giving up like they they all of a sudden like can see it, can see all of your secrets. And like every company is built around a few secrets mm-hmm. and like you expose those, you're exposing it to the world. All of a sudden, all of your competitors know about it. Like, it, it, you know, you know, to me, there's just like the, the level of risk there is so high that it's really hard to imagine like kind of allowing that. Um, it, and like, yeah, so 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 it's one of those things where like I understand the purpose, but like God, I would not want that job. <laughs> yeah, the tools just aren't like the tools like for the job you'd want to do if you had it, right? The tools aren't there. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would say in 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 general, though, you know, tech tech press aside, like I don't know, I I I. I journalism strikes me as a as a as a a a, a field that is going to have to go through some sort of reconstruction slash reckoning over the next period this is this is a thing i think about a lot uh i don't know if you know this ian but like my first the first thing i wanted to be when i was a, a teenager was a journalist I did not know that. I was the editor of my high school newspaper yeah. and I wrote for the UC Davis Aggie. Yeah. Uh, God, I hope that none of the articles are available online. Uh, the the thing, the reason why I didn't pursue that career is because I found out how terrible the pay was relative to how much work you had to do. <laughs> You're like, oh, wait a minute. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I mean, it was a combination of like, I don't, I didn't enjoy interviewing people ever yeah. really. Like I just am too socially awkward for that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't mind talking into a microphone with someone that I, that I like, but I don't like talking to strangers. Um and the like the pay really is bad 
And mm-hmm. I mean, I know an example, like, I don't think, I think there's a lot of people that are, that are creative and good and like they have a lot of human capital and they're in journalism and it's almost always like not their actual livelihood that like supports them. Right. And I, and I went to school with someone who was an amazing, like award-winning journalist, worked for NPR and she dropped out to be like, she just stopped doing it to be a nutritionist because that paid more um, and was easier work to do. And I, I, that makes me worry about journalism as a field, like that, that whole structural problem of like, the, you have, you know, people with either limited options because they don't have other talents or people who don't have limited options and they're in it because they are like very wealthy and this is the thing they've chosen to do. Yeah. And yeah. those both like, like those both cause the field to be a certain way. I'm not exactly sure that I can characterize what it is, yeah. but it's not, it's not what you would get if it were a highly paid job that was competing with, I don't know, product manager at a startup, uh, which to me does seem like a similar, like if I were to design uh, like the set of skills uh, without regard to like market competition, it wouldn't look too too different from journalist. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, my feeling is like there is a third option there, which is like the independent Substack option, and a lot, you know, definitely a lot of the, uh, you know, a number of the most talented, at least in my opinion, the most talented journalists have gone that route. Um, I think that is going to thin out the publications even more where, you know, where it's basically like, well, the only reason you're here is because, you know, you're, you're not Ben Thompson. And so you can't make $2 million a year on your, on, on, on your own pub. But like, this is terrifying, right? Like that, that, like that's the public, the public good of honest reporting is out there. And then the behind a paywall is, are the people that built up, like have put in the work and built up their, their skills. Well, well, I mean, I mean, most of those folks do publish free, free versions, but I, I but, think that the way Substack generally works is like the, the, the current top line story is free for most people. But if you want the archives, yeah. like you, can't, I mean, you can't read anything more than that. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can set it up how, how I, however you like, I mean, Ben, Ben Thompson, as, as you probably know, like has his you know, the big articles he does for free and then his like daily and weekly newsletters that you pay for. I actually didn't but, know. Is he, is he actually on Substack now? He is, he was, he is he not was, on Substack. Yeah. Like, okay. He, he, he runs his own stack. It's just like, like, okay. I'm, uh, I'm, like he, I, I'm sorry. Like when I was at Patreon, we really yeah. wanted Ben Thompson and he yeah. didn't want to do it because he ran, he rolled his own. And yeah. I would have been so mad if he went over to Substack. I, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's more that like, that like the Substack concept is very much built around around his success, right? Like he's not on it, but I would argue like the reason you would think that that model could be successful and is because- looked ben at Ben Thompson, Thompson and said like, oh, and, and we're basically can we like, make more of those? Yeah, and we're basically like, there's probably 10,000 other people out there that can be as effective as this. Like, mm-hmm. let's go get those. Um, and like, that's kind of what they're seeing right now. I mean, I mean, to me, the idea of, of, of a journalistic publication as a public good is already dead. 
like that is over. So the big question is like, what is the next thing? Cause it isn't that. <laughs> um, and, and, and I, I, I will postulate that I might be out ahead of most people on this, but like, I don't know, like, I just think back to the COVID coverage around like January, February, March, when like, I knew what was going on because I was following people on Twitter who, you know, it, it had started to become an active conversation where people were like, Hey, there's something going on in China. And then they were like, Oh, there is something really bad going on in China and this is going to get out and we're starting to warn about it. And in the means, you know, so, so you have folks on Twitter basically saying like, Hey, get prepared. This is going to get here. And then at the same time, you have like New York times articles saying like, everything is fine. Like the flu is a bigger worry and Vox articles, like making fun of the tech industry for not wanting to like, to like give handshakes. And then six weeks later, we are literally locked down. Like those articles could have killed people. And they were like completely wrong about, about the situation. And so, you know, to me, I, I just kind of look at that and I'm like, the publications are already dead. Like you cannot trust them. It doesn't matter if they lean to the left or lean to the right. Like they have slid into an incentive structure that does not work for journalism as a public good. The individuals are still effective at this, but you really do need to figure out like who are the right people to be listening to. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if it is the incentive structure or the labor market problem that I like. I think you can the the incentive structure can make not something out of nothing and nothing out of something, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Depend depending yeah. on uh, and that's bad on its own in in that case i do think i don't know like they're like why did why were there so many whiffs on early covid in journalism i don't like i don't have access to enough journalists to give a full retro but you can start with um you know there's a tribal thing going on where the people that were afraid of covid were not the type of people that journalists want to listen to uh, like the, the people that i just you know the people that you bring up and you know in this case it's like some tech reporters that don't really like the tech industry because facebook destroyed the journalism and they're yeah. still mad about that uh like i would i would say that that's probably one motivation and then the 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 other is like do we take like do like there's conflicting scientific information and have they really like have the journalists that have the job that they have really been educated well enough in this particular area to distinguish from the people that say like it's just like a flu variant from the people that are you know like sure it's like the flu variant but like that like 10 times deadlier than flu is actually going to kill a lot of people and it ends up being like 20 times yeah. um, it, it, um it's not it's not obvious to me like that the like i to me like the private market failure is leading to the public good problem for the most part there i can uh, i could see the merits of that of of that argument i it, it's hard for me to see how that gets solved but like i i, I mean i don't i don't know it, like it's it's you know, like the the way you, you 
correct a private market is through a public intervention, but like, I can't uh, like, yeah. well, it's like cures for like higher really. Well, uh, well, no. So, 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 so if it seems confusing, if, if, if your assessment is correct, then the thing you need to do is bring those jobs from a competitive standpoint in line with other things that people might do. Right. And, and like, I, I, I would actually argue like we are seeing that effect in a lot of places right now. So I would, I would argue that politics is a place where you see something like this as well, where, where it's just like the positions don't pay enough. And so like the people that go into them are either people who can't do anything else or are optimizing for a different thing. Um, it, 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 in, in the politician's case, like potentially optimizing for access to power, which is like exactly the thing you don't want them optimizing for. Yeah. But I mean, uh, at least, at least, all right. So like to me, like pay politicians more is fairly straightforward because the, the yeah. government already pays them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like, whereas, whereas like actually pay, paying journalists, like having the government step in and, uh, and put a ceiling, put a floor on journalist wages, which is one, one way you could do it or put, like actually pay them, like subsidize them creates yeah. an, like, it, well, now we've got a different problem. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, <laughs> so like, I don't think you can solve that problem through a public intervention, but like you have to, like, like at least you have to start from the perspective of like, we need these people to make more money. Right. And so then it's like, all right, well, how does that happen? There are some ways of doing that. Like, like one thing that you could do as a, for instance, is basically say, okay, we're not going to run things like, you know, at the scale of Buzzfeed, right? Like that, because that is not a model that will sustain a $250,000 a year salary for a journalist. Like we need them to be small exclusive publications Right. Such, you know, with, uh, you know, with like a pretty good ticket price on them and like, you know, and, but that, you know, that, that warrants whatever the sticker price is. Um, I don't know. Like I, I, I haven't thought hard enough about that because, but you do bring up. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't, I didn't want to like try to get you to solve one of the, one of the big, the key like labor market breakdowns of our, of our time. Yeah. It's like, but, you know, but, but I will say that, that like, I, I agree that we need more out of that space. Because, yeah. I, I, it, because like COVID, COVID has been a struggle for journalism, right? And it's been a struggle in exactly, I think in a lot of the ways you would predict where you have to reason about risk, right? And yeah. report on it. And I'm sorry, humans are disastrous at, at like, like you pick a general human, which like, let's just call journalists general humans. And then you ask them to reason about risk, even like a fairly well-trained human is yeah. going to be pretty bad at it. And yeah. I mean, well, we, we've seen some instances. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and like, you know, moreover, like our, our current sort of societal ethos is all about take the risk to zero. Right. Which like, you know, if like if like they could create a car that was not capable of of, of, of like getting into accidents, but only moved at 15 miles an hour, like 
there is a fairly good chance that it would get legislated that everybody has to drive that car. See, now this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna flip I'm gonna flip sides from the previous conversation. I'm gonna say the in, the incentives that we have, and part of this is legal and part of this is moral, is yeah. to take the risk that you are doing harm to zero, yeah. and take well basically ignoring the risk that you are allowing harm. Yeah. Because doing harm is really bad. Allowing harm, eh, everybody allows harm. Like so so like I th- I think you know you see that in reporting on the vaccines where like it's very, very focused on reactions and stuff yeah. that happens. Like it totally happens and some of it is from like it's hard to tell but right. Some of it is literally from the vaccine. Yeah. But it is like you will read a whole article about it and not mention like what happens in the, you know, to people of that age, if they don't get the vaccine. So like, (laughs) you know, if you withdraw a bunch of it, like you're, you're stopping doing some harm, but then you, you have, you see people failing in, in real time to reason about what harm they are allowing at the same time. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I, I do think that this comes back to the idea, you know, and I think we, we talked about this, this like a little bit, but our, our current sort of structure, both on, you know, both on, a, both like in terms of our, our, our sort of societal backing and the institutions that we've built to execute on this, like their focus is on, is on accuracy. Like we don't make a decision until we are a hundred percent sure of like what the right answer is. And like clinical trials are built to like, to like get to that, you know, and, and we are now in a situation where like, that is just not like it, it is, it is a mismatch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's, 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 there's a lot of time that you have to put into doing like to get yeah. into accurate, especially if you want to be accurate and fair. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so like accuracy takes time. Um, when, you know, when, when the alternative, you know, sort of as you were saying, like when, when the alternative to doing something is, is doing nothing, but the impact of doing nothing is zero, then fine. Take as much time as you need. Right. But when the alternative to doing something is doing nothing and the impact of that is 1500 people dying a day, like, you know, you know, to me, it is nonsensical at that point to not be evaluating like like you're not in a null situation on the other side. You are in an actively harmful situation on the other side that has to be taken into account. You you know you really make me wish that I had more more metaphors besides finance and baseball to reach to because <laughs> I mean it it is true like the like it does make like the, nothing has changed other than the environment around you right and if you're yeah. investing and you're you know you're making an investment that gets you seven percent of return that is great when your default like when your risk free investment like you can in, invest money in the bank and you get no money out of it, right? Yeah. If you could invest money, if you could just put money in a savings account and get 7%, that's not great, right? Yeah. The, yeah. you know, the the risk reduction that we're doing on the, you know, on trials on basically anything that we're trying to, to use to mitigate COVID is, 
you know, like if we're subjecting it to the same, um, the same sort of evaluation that assumes that the risk environment is unchanged from previously, and you're evaluating it wrong, like you're no, yeah. you're failing to to change your portfolio despite like a, an increase in the risk-free rate of return. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think an interesting way to kind of think about it is like is like what is what is the opportunity cost, right? Meaning meaning of like the pathway not taken. Right. So, so like if you're getting, you know, if you're thinking about investment and you're getting a 7% rate of return, like, well, it, well, if, if the market is returning 15%, like that is not good. Right. It, if the market is, is returning negative 5%, like you're doing very well. Right. Yeah. Like if you're like, like if you're, if you're looking for a new job, right. And you're and and basically like, uh, you know, and you're evaluating an early stage company um, and your alternative is to, you know, is to stay at, at you know, big company with a high, with, you know, with a, with a high compensation package versus your alternative is sitting at home on your parents' couch. Like those are very, very different sort of, sort of, sort of scenarios to measure that opportunity against. And, and like, everybody knows how to do that, right? To like, basically say like, hey, this one is better than that one. <laughs> or, <Do> they, though? <laughs> some people know how to do that. And like, I, you know. I, I mean, I definitely am going to opt for like, this is a very typical human failure, right? Like we, it's hard to, re, like, we, for, we forget about risks, right? Like we, and we definitely ignore opportunity costs. Like that is the, the those are those are things that many people that are very smart do, and yeah. you know like the problem because the problem is that this is you know there's a there's a lot of people talking about COVID there's a lot of people reporting about COVID and they're doing the elementary human dumb stuff yeah they do all the time and there's not like you you know especially in this environment where. You know, I, I think every single person who's into data and has some experience with health has talked a loved one out of a bad decision yes. at some point or talked them into something that, that probably wasn't as risky as they thought it was yeah. because of uh, like the way that the media has propagated things that are, I mean, let's, to be fair, hard to reason about for most people, but that's just a reason why as a public service, you don't really want reporters to be most people. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that actually might be the core point of just like, we need more out of that group. Like yeah. if they're going to have access, like if they're going to be the primary distribution channel for 90% of the country in terms of how they're going to get their information, like we just need them to be better than, than, than they are. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what, what I'm saying is like, they don't like, there's benefits to society that good journalism has that just don't get captured in their wages. And that is the, the, the thing. It's a huge problem, I think, for, for both politics and, and for, um, for technical writing and for, um, reporting on COVID, um, and if there were some way to make it so that the people they actually like reporters were rewarded 
for the public good that they do through doing good reporting, then that would be, that would solve the problem. I don't yeah. really have the mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if, if like, if like everyone could be as good as Ben Thompson, uh, then like, that is definitely one solution. It's not necessarily ideal because you need like, that would not have solved the COVID problem where like basically nobody gave a crap about public health until the middle of March. And all of a sudden everybody cared about public health. Yeah. And, and so like those, those, whoever was running that beat has like that exact moment in time to do the right thing and capture the upside. Like, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I like, but you, you would be great if you had specialists that could level up quickly or a yeah. generalist, sorry, that could, if, it would be great if you had generalists that could level up quickly. I mean, um, that's hard though. I um, would, but would, man, how great is Ben Thompson, by the way? Like yeah, that it's, guy, it's, uh, <laughs> like there's a career I would love to have. Like he just, he writes his newsletter. He's like, writes very well, analyzes very well. Also uh, appears on podcasts about animal crossing uh, and manages to be decently entertaining uh, on those. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I would say like when you said, I originally thought I wanted to be a journalist. Like that's what popped into my head of like, oh, like that would be. I would have, I would have enjoyed having Ben Thompson's job if I knew, if I, if I had thought to do it. Like that, that would have. Like I don't have to talk to a bunch of people I don't know. I can write like opinionated, structured pieces. Also, go on a lot of nerdy uh, podcasts apparently, and still do a pretty good job. well, all you all you really have to do is hit on hit on one insight that gets shared out by some influential people, and then you're good to go. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not maybe this maybe this is it. Maybe pay yeah. journalists more is our is my yeah. insight. <laughs> I mean, I mean, not that he only has one, but like he got to one, and then that kind of like went boom. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think you can. I mean, just to you know, I'm going to well ask you, you a little bit. Like he. Uh, you can get to one, you can sustain it if you're a good writer, right? Yes. And this is a thing, people get a little over the edge onto the STEM part of education. And I think being a good writer can carry you as oh, far yeah. and is worth as much. If you can do a little bit more math than the average person and write really well about it, that is a great toolkit to walk into the labor market with. Um you know, like people, people go a little too far on the other side and they think that any, anything you do in the humanities is, is going to pay, like is, is necessarily worthwhile or is going to pay off for you. And I, I, I don't think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, some of it is purely consumption and some of it is fun and some of it is awesome. But if you can walk out of your humanities degree, being a good writer that can reach a broad audience and the broader the audience you can do, the better that will be for your career. Um, Then that is worthwhile and like you can do good and do well. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would add to that. Like if you add a little, like if you add an element of like creative thinking to that, yeah, right. Where it's like you, you can do the communication you can do the math and the analysis to like, you know, to, to show that your work is correct. Um, and then, 
and then you've got that creative element of thinking, meaning meaning that you are able to to that you are that you are able to identify the right problems to work on, and the sorts of solutions that are you know that are uh, that are like the kinds of solutions that are that are meaningful. Yeah. Uh, no, I. With, I yeah. That. That is where, like, you know, in the modern humanities education can do these things for you. Like, they can they can help you become a better creative, critical thinker. They can help you be a better writer. They can help you read from lots of different sources and think about them well. You yeah. just have to be looking to get that out of it, right? And that's yeah. that's what it has to be. Um, all right, I think we should we should wrap for today. I smell dinner. And also I promised my children that I would play Hyrule Warriors with them uh, before bed. And it is pretty much their bedtime. So I have to, I have to fulfill my duties. Um, We have to, we have to go kill, kill Ganon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it's really good seeing you. I'm glad we're doing this again. Yeah. And we'll, you know, we're going to, we're going to try to, to be better at podcasting, like as in timely better. Yeah. All right. All right. It was good talking to you, Ian, and we'll catch you next time. All right.